Welcome to the 12th episode of Sound the Foghorn Fanside. It's official San Francisco Giants podcast. I am your host, Mark DeLuke, and today I am joined by McCovey Chronicles, Brady Klopfer. Brady, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Mark. How about you? Not bad. Not bad. Staying in, uh, you know, keeping up to date as I'm sure you are with the action or inaction from the San Francisco Giants. Obviously, you, you are the, the main guy over at McCovey Chronicles. And what has been sort of from your perspective, you know, looking at uh, this Giants offseason, I'm curious, what have been your takeaways thus far? I mean, I think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head with inaction. Um, it's been a weird, it's been a weird offseason. I've noticed that like in the conversations I've had, you know, with, with other people, both fans and of the Giants and of baseball in general and, and other writers and whatnot, is the inaction kind of leads to some very interesting discussions and some spirited debates because there are a lot of people who seem to view this inaction as gearing up for next offseason that, you know, a bunch of moves now aren't going to move the needle that much. Uh, the team should wait until they're in a better position and then, you know, start to unload the wallet, so to speak. And a lot of people who view the inaction as, you know, ownership giving a directive to Farhan Zaidi that the raise method is good enough. And if you don't spend a lot of money, but can still be, you know, a reasonably competitive team year in and year out, that that's the best thing for business. And obviously for fans of a large market team that usually has a, historically has a high payroll. Uh, that's not exactly what you're looking for. So I, it, it's all been about inactivity, but because of that, there are a lot of different ways to view the offseason in terms of what it means long-term. And, and from that element, it's, it's been a, an interesting offseason, even if it's been defined by a lack of really any moves. Yeah, and I think it applies in a broader sense to also uh, just thirst for stories because for the Giants, I think everyone, at, frankly, I think most people are in agreement that the regular season itself was not, you know, perhaps success is too strong a word, but perhaps not the disaster that it looked like it could have been. I think for a lot of people, they expected, you know, at the start of 2020, of course, everything else in the year seemed to be a disaster, but that's a separate issue. And the minor leagues was supposed to be the beacon of hope was supposed to be the excitement. You know, how's Joey Bart do a double or triple a does Elliot Ramos bounce back from his struggles at the Arizona fall league at double a, does he reach triple a maybe push to the minor major leagues does Will Wilson, how does Hunter Bishop look in his first full season of action? Do any of the pitchers, does Seth Corey get close? Is there, you know, are there breakout prospects, Marco Luciano, obviously, and that didn't happen. And so I think that's also, a big part of what makes it so difficult is from a fan's perspective, you know, that minor league ladder normally gives that timeline, right? That, Oh, this player's at double a, this player's at triple a. So they're relatively close and we don't have that to go on. And at the same time, we're assuming we don't even know if the team does, right? Like we, it's interesting to, to me to wonder, you know, what is the front office? Are they, I imagine they're, not necessarily as uncertain as we are, but they, you got to think are pretty uncertain too. It's like, you know, no one who's working in the Giants organization has had a time where they've had to evaluate players without a minor league season and figure out if they're going to be big league ready. Does this slow down their development? All those questions as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point because that really is, you know, for all of the fun parts of last season and all of the surprising developments, like, you know, I think, I think most of us went into the season, you know, pre-pandemic thinking there is not really anything interesting about this team at the major league level, but there is a lot interesting at the minor league level and at the development level. And that ended up being, you know, kind of the opposite with, with the minors not happening and with the major league team actually being relatively interesting against, certainly against my belief and I think against most people's uh, belief. But, but yeah, that's a great point because it really is almost a lost year in that regard. And certainly, you know, the, the powers that be with the giants and the decision makers have a little bit more information and Intel than we have, but, but they're still shooting blindly at some point going into this season. And, and you really do count on that development or, you know, positive or negative 
each year at the minor league level to help you adjust your timeline, help you realize what gaps you need to fill, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're, uh, yeah, they're kind of shooting blindly there. And it'll be a very fascinating season, I think, assuming that uh, the minor leagues are able to follow through in a more uh, normal way this year, that they're, they're kind of going to have to accelerate things in some, in some ways. They're going to have to figure out their assessments of players, where players are relative to the last time they saw them. Uh, they're going to have to get there quickly and, because they're going to have some, some time to, some lost time to make up for. Definitely. And I wonder too, you know, obviously they've, the starting rotation was, I'm not going to say, I guess in some sense decimated. I mean, it was already a pretty weak group, but you have Kevin Galsman at free agency or Kevin Galsman, Drew Smiley and Tyler Anderson, who are obviously uh, prominent parts of the rotation last season hit free or I guess Smiley and Galsman at free agency and then Anderson not tendered. Of course, Galsman brought back on the qualifying offer. Smiley goes to Atlanta. Anderson remains a free agent. And it looks like in lieu of other bigger options, they've signed Anthony Sclafani to a one-year deal. They've recently signed Alex Wood to a one-year deal. I'm curious, you know, one, how do you see that rotation group? How do you think it compares to last year's? And do you think uh, we're going to see another addition, uh, another major league contract, another sizable addition to that starting group? I don't know if I'd, if I'd say sizable. I do think we'll see another. Um, yeah, I think we'll see another signing. But I, <laughs> I think Alex would, you know, unless you're counting Gosman with the re-signing, I think Alex Wood will go down as the biggest move of the offseason, the biggest, you know, um, player brought in from, from a different organization. I do think they'll add another pitcher just because, you know, historically we know that Zaidi is a lot more comfortable with like seven or eight starting pitchers uh, on a team than with just five. And I guess now if you've got, you've got five penciled in and then BD coming along as well, um, I just kind of feel like, you know, whether it's taking a flyer on a guy like Julio Tehran or something like that, uh, I think that there's still going to be one more smallish move. But as for how they stack up, I'm kind of in the middle. I don't expect it to be a good rotation at all. Um, I like a lot of the players. I think the Alex Wood signing was really good. I think he's a really, a really strong pitcher, and I'm all for those reclamation projects where you take a player who was really good, struggled either – just with regression or in Wood's case with injuries. And then you bring them back in when their value is at the lowest and you know, they still have skill. I think those are, are great signings, especially for a team that's kind of rebuilding and retooling. So I really like that signing. I, I don't expect the rotation to be good, but I do think that they have enough interesting pieces on quality contracts that they can start to execute a little bit of the team's vision. Cause the funny thing I feel about about the Giants since Sensidy has taken over is they've been more competitive than they intended on, or I shouldn't say intended, than they thought they were going to be in both of his years, um, or at least in the first half of those seasons. So they entered the trade deadline in both 2019 and 2020 fighting for playoff position, which I don't think anyone really thought was going to happen. And even though he still made moves, he hasn't made the big moves that, that, you know, people expected the, trading Madison Bumgarner or Will Smith in 2019, which never happened. Uh, and I expected last year that, you know, you're bringing in Gosman, you're bringing in Smiley, one-year deals. You're going to try to do what you did with Drew Pomeranz, have a decent year with them, trade them at the deadline for some, you know, B-level prospects that you can start to bolster the farm and, and build going forward. And we haven't seen that because they've been more competitive than anticipated. Uh, but I think there's a really good chance we see that with these types of players, with, with Alex Wood, with Deslafani, with even Cueto with his expiring deal. Um, I think there's a really good chance that one, two, or even three pitchers from that rotation end up being players who can bring back a decent-sized return at the trade deadline, assuming that the Giants don't accidentally find themselves in another playoff race. So... In that regard, I think it's a, I think it's a nice rotation um, in terms of how well will they actually perform as a unit. I still expect this to be one of the worst rotations in baseball. They just they lack the high end 
starters, in my opinion. No yeah. disrespect to Gosman. And I also think you make a really good point. Like, I also like these pitchers individually. I'm a bit lower on Di Sclafani than I think some other people like Grant Brisby are. But, you know, Di Sclafani's been a really solid mid-rotation arm. Obviously, Wood has had, you know, been a really good pitcher kind of in a, you know, controlled fashion. You know, usually limited to five or six innings to start because of his injury history and whatnot. But still been incredibly effective for, like you mentioned, you know, he's always had injury troubles. But especially the last couple of seasons, you know, obviously Gallison is coming off a, a nice year. I do think Logan Webb can become a good starter. I think he's had some bad luck over the last couple of seasons. But the, and, you know, obviously we've seen what Cueto can do at his best. But with that group, there's, when there's no one that you can say, I'm really sure is going to be really good, you know, Gallison's probably the closest thing. And he's two years removed from a year where he's, you know, designated for assignment and out of uh, starting rotation. It's difficult to say this can be a good rotation because what you have to essentially do to say that is that all five of the players who have some serious uh, concerns, maybe is too strong a word, but just, you know, history of struggle at various, for various reasons, all five kind of have to hit for it to be a good rotation. And I think it's also uh, made harder to envision it being competitive by what the Padres have done. And also though, I think, to your point about the deadline, what the Padres have done might have solved that problem for the Giants because now they're going to probably be in a division with the two best teams in the National League, arguably in baseball, in the Dodgers and Padres. And so that's going to be two teams. That's going to be a really difficult challenge for the Giants, you know, however many times a year they play them, depending on if those seasons condensed or shortened due to the pandemic. But they're going to play them disproportionately, and that's going to be – a difficult matchup. I mean, they've added the Padres this offseason have probably added three starters in Joe Musgrove, Blake Snell, and you Darvish. Actually, yeah, they have. They've had three starters. Who would be the best starter in the Giants rotation? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that, but it's, it's funny you bring that up. Um, your point about all of them being quality starters and just you're lacking that, that front end or two or three front end starters. I feel like this has been an interesting and slightly problematic situation that the Giants have had for the last two or three years in the in their lineup, and now we're seeing it in the rotation as well, where they're full of decent players. They so they don't really have those holes that absolutely need to be filled because really everyone on that on that team, if they or almost everyone on that team if they were waived, they would be picked up instantly by a good team. Um, well, you know, they obviously wouldn't make it to a good team, but you know what I mean? You know, the Giants are, have a lot of players that even a team like the Dodgers or Padres would be happy to have. They just wouldn't put them in the role that the Giants are putting them in. And so it's kind of a weird thing from a roster building standpoint, because, you know, you look back on like maybe the 2017 or the 2018 team and, you know, this team doesn't have a, a Kelby Tomlinson or something like that. No disrespect to Kelby Tomlinson, but you know, they don't have those players where you're like, wow, this guy shouldn't be on an MLB roster. If this person were in the Dodgers organization, he would be on the bench in triple a they're full of, of MLB quality players. They're just across the board are lacking frontline starters, all-star quality players. Uh, and I think the rotation is just a, a shining example of that, where they really have, you know, five guys that I think are really strong number four or number five starters. <laughs> and that means that you have a chance every game, but it's really hard to ever feel like you have the advantage in any game. And that's going to be an enormous uphill battle for them this year. But like you say, I, I think it is almost a blessing in disguise that the Padres are this good because it really does kind of expedite the roster building that not only is your schedule that much harder, but it really just highlights how far the giants are from the top of the division when there are now two teams in that tier. Whereas before it was like, all right, well, the Dodgers are the Dodgers, they're way ahead, whatever. You can still fight for second place and that's valuable. 
now realistically, you know, the Giants are going to finish 30 games out of second place in the division. And uh, that makes it a little bit easier to, um, to start hitting the trade button and selling all that to the fans, I think. And, and also, you know, we mentioned, you know, sort of the inter uh, Giants Twitter discourse about is ownership putting this doctrine because they're trying to be cheap down or is the front office choosing not to use some financial uh, weight, throw financial weight around for whatever reason. And I think the one other, I guess, if you want to turn the difficult situation of being in the division with the Dodgers and Padres into a potential positive is that it's pretty impossible to see the Giants getting on that tier unless they start spending on that tier again. Right. Like I, I think that's one thing where, you know, the giants intend to be world series contenders. I don't think that's a question. They are not, their ownership group is not equivalent to the A's ownership group and they're not going to be content with a, which, you know, a playoff run every few seasons, but they're going to have to spend at some point, even if they don't want to now or are, holding back on that there's no way to really catch the Padres or Dodgers unless there's some you know absurd trade slash prospect development that's just unprecedented and so I think though you do make an interesting point about the starting lineup because if you look at it you know you ask how do you make a bad team good most in most settings usually there's a couple obvious spots on a roster where you go wow this team is terrible at third base or terrible at left field. If I just add an above average third baseman to this team, that's going to give them like four or five wins because it's so bad, right? That's kind of what left field was for the Giants for so many years. They just struggled to get, or really the outfield in general. They're getting such poor production from the outfield that if they just had a league average option, right? It's why Giants fans watched in dismay as Adam Duvall became a league average outfielder and maybe even a little above average with the Reds while they were, you know, not getting that from the Justin Maxwells of the world and even Hunter Pence near the end of his first stint with the Giants. And that's not what this roster is. It's a roster of, like you said, it's a roster of pretty good average and slightly above and above average at every position. You probably, if you ranked every position one to 30, my bet would be every giant starter with maybe only one or two exceptions are between number 10 and number 20 and in almost all categories. And it's a weird situation because you're now stuck in the idea of, all right, we're going to need to develop stars from our prospects. And Marco Luciano might be that Joey Bart, you know, I mentioned LA Ramos under Bishop, Luis Matos, someone of that ilk. But if they don't, like, I guess that's why there's partially, I think, so much focus on these prospects because they really need to hit on at least one or two and not even just hit in the way of getting a good big league player. Obviously, they'll take that, but they need star power because that's what this team is so uh, desperately lacking. Yeah, 100%. They they need at least one and, and preferably two of, of those top prospects to really turn into franchise level players and you know historically you look at at the team in the last you know few decades and that's really what they've been built on even with their high payroll I mean you know those were those three world series teams were built around Buster Posey turning into a hall of fame caliber player Tim Linsko, Matt Cain, Madison Bumgarner, Pablo Sandoval all developing into all-star players and then you use the payroll to fill in the gaps and to make sure that those players are staying on the team and in the organization going forward but you know even when they were spending money this this isn't an organization that has made a habit of cobbling together a lineup with pieces from the outside they are dependent on homegrown talent and it's it's both exciting and depressing looking at, at the, the current roster with, with everything that we just said, because there really isn't anyone who has been playing at the MLB level on the Giants that you can be very excited about um, long-term because most of the players are veterans who have been good and are still pretty good, but are obviously on the, on the downside of their careers. 
your you know Buster Posey's and the Brandons and whatnot. And then even the players who are on the up and up, like Yastrzemski and and Solano, are at an age where you don't really count on them being able to maintain their level of play for for that much longer. So they absolutely need a Luciano and and hopefully a Ramos or a Bart Matos, someone to to have that backbone for the team coming through. And and then they're just going to have to start emptying out the wallet as as these contracts expire. And it's 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 a exciting and scary time I think for for Giants fans to to see because everything, you know, we just mentioned with having all those decent players at all those positions, most of those contracts are coming up. Uh, and it's going to be a whole lot of holes that need to be filled in the farm. They've got to be optimistic that some of those holes are going to be filled, but just logistically, you can't fill all of them that way. Uh, and, and they're going to have to start making some moves here eventually, even if it's just to supplement the star talent that hopefully comes out of the minors. Yeah, and, you know, as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of a roster filled with those guys who are really good players, you know, kind of the Marco Scuderos of the world, if you will. Players who it's like if you were a kid, you're a young fan. There's a lot of guys who like, that's my favorite player, even though they aren't the best player on the team, but just because like you went to a game when they got three hits, like that's kind of what this Giants team is filled with, like really like good, exciting players, fun players, but no one who's a star. And then it hit me. Yeah, I know you do work over at Golden State of Mind. This is kind of like the We Believe Warriors. Right. Like it's, yeah. And maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but like in terms of like, there's a bunch of like good NBA players, there's a, you know, Baron Davis and Mike Yastrzemski. I don't think anyone's ever going to compare, but you know, like (laughs) I, you know, like in some sense, you know, there's a lot of solid players, really good players, exciting players, fun players, but they're caught in this thing where again, that's probably not enough to get over the top. And, you know, the one difference, obviously, between baseball and basketball is you have the salary cap in basketball that limited the flexibility of Warriors, where the Giants don't necessarily have that. And that's part of the reason I think fans are so into the idea of signing a Trevor Bauer or signing a George Springer. And again, I've written plenty about why I don't think Trevor Bauer should be really is a fit for a number of reasons. But, you know, I can see why there's that desperation to sign that big name and why I do genuinely believe the Giants were trying to sign Bryce Harper I don't buy into the they were investing for and they were in they were uh what do you call it leaking offers to seem like they were trying I genuinely believe Zaidi understood that Harper was young enough to not only be a star face of the franchise guy because imagine if you're looking at this roster right now with Bryce Harper and Mike Yastrzemski opposite each other you're obviously not saying they're going to compete with the Dodgers and Padres but it's not easier to see them getting to that place if, they, if you have one star you can say all right it's a bit easier for me to see something build around it where now it's like again it's pretty like almost a flat plane like it's everyone's kind of on the same level and it's weird to look at well where do we start then what do we upgrade first yeah and i i really like i really like that comparison to the we believe warriors and i think in making that comparison to basketball it brings up kind of an an important point with with the Giants, which is that unlike in basketball, baseball is a sport where one star isn't enough. Yeah. You can't, you know, you you put LeBron James on that We Believe Warriors team and you win a championship. You put Bryce Harper on this Giants team. And like you said, you're not competing with the Dodgers, the Padres, but it is a huge step in the right direction. And it's a step that makes other players more interested incoming. I mean, I agree with you that, that, that the fight for Bryce Harper was honest. And I, I think that they would have also gotten in on Mookie Betts had the Dodgers not extended him just because of his age. Uh, but you look at Harper and Giancarlo Stanton, both ultimately saying no to the Giants. And both of them, you know, Stanton a little bit more openly, but Harper, you know, a little bit as well in, in the reports, both of them pointing to the fact that the team wasn't good and you know do you want to make that long-term commitment to a team that right now isn't proving that they can be competing for a world series and then you look at well it's a lot easier to convince someone that you're a franchise that they can contend with when you do have a Bryce Harper there and it makes it easier for those things to start snowballing a little bit play you know good players want to play with good players good players want to play on good teams and so, yeah, I, I think 
I think they're definitely in that area where you're a quality team. You, you can put up a fight in any game, in any series, and, and you're missing that, that star talent. And the problem in baseball is you just need to go get a lot of it. And, and I agree with your point that I don't think they're going to suppress payroll as long as the Dodgers and Padres are this good uh, because that model might, might work if the Giants were in the AL Central. Uh, but it sure as hell isn't going to work in the NL West, at least not for quite a while. And I, I do think that they are committed to finding their way back to the top of the division. Uh, but it's going to require looking at what the Dodgers and Padres are doing and looking at just how many all-star caliber players and MVP caliber players are on those teams and realizing that you have to do something to start getting those kinds of players in your organization at any level. No doubt. And, and that's what I think we as a lot of Giants fans took for granted for so long and, and kind of myself included in having Madison Bumgarner uh, really through 20, I mean, through 2016 or excuse me, through last season, but, you know, really for I guess 2019 um, for so long. And obviously before him, Lincecum, and even before Lincecum, Matt Kane, is that for so long, the Giants always had a starting pitcher that you knew no matter how bad the team was once every five days, you were going to have confidence that you could win that game because of that starter, no matter how poorly the lineup was doing, even if it was the Dodgers lineup with, you know, Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and all these, you know, Matt Kemp that you knew Lincecum or Kane or Bumgarner when they were at their peaks and they kind of never really overlapped. So they, it kind of spread everything out that you could win that game because those pitchers were that good. And that's something obviously the giants really haven't had in Bumgarner since his, since he had the accident and the shoulder injury. And, you know, obviously again, I don't blame them for not resigning him. his first year in Arizona, obviously didn't go particularly well, but it shows what losing a true ace really does to a team. Because right now, again, I really like Kevin Gallison. We've talked about the rotation, but it's also just not having anyone who UK, all right, we can stop the bleeding if we're on a losing streak with this starter. Where right now, it's almost built in the opposite, where this is a deep offense, where you can look at almost a matchup and say, you know, I can see this team getting four or five runs on nearly every starting pitcher but you don't know whether the starting pitching and bullpen is going to be able to hold it. And that's just sort of a new dynamic, I think, for fans as well. Yeah, it's a hard one for fans. And I think it's a hard one, um, you know, for players as well. I think mm. you, when, you, when you're on a team like that, I think you anchor yourselves a little bit to those types of players. And knowing, like you said, someone can stop the bleeding. You're on a losing streak, you can go, all right, well, Mad Bum's going to be on the mound in two days. You know, we can, we'll get our win there. We'll kind of reset and we'll start over. Uh, and when you don't have that, I just think there's a little bit of a trickle-down effect. I think offensive players tend to tend to start to press a little bit more because they feel like they need to take on a bigger load. They need to do more in order to have a chance to win. Um, and then obviously you just don't get as many pitches or as many innings out of your starting pitchers, which means you're getting more innings out of your relievers, which means they're not as fresh. They're not as good when you are actually in a competitive game. Uh, I really think, you know, Giants fans got very spoiled with all those years of, of um, Garner and Kane and Lincecum and even Jason Schmidt and whatnot. And I think you kind of take for granted how smoothly some elements of a baseball game can go when you have a, a high quality number one starter on the mound. And it just, it kind of puts oil in all the gears of, of a team. It makes everything fit. The relievers start pitching out of the roles that they're best suited for. The manager can make better decisions because they're not backed into a corner quite as much. The offensive players can be a little bit more patient. I mean, you look at the, the 2019 Giants and remember that horrendous, just mind-bogglingly horrible run differential they had in the first inning for that season that was just it was out of the, it was comically bad. You, it was almost unbelievable. And maybe I'm just making this up, but I really felt like you could see that in the offensive players that, you know, when they're on the road and they're coming up to bat in the top of the first, that they're all feeling like, like we have to put a run or two on the board or we're going to be losing in the second inning. 
and I just don't think you play as well that way when you're when you're pressing. Um, so it's it takes a hit to everyone, but but I think the biggest one, like you said, is, is to the fans. Just you rely on having that that pitcher every fifth day, knowing that you have a, a date on the calendar you can circle that you want to watch that game, a date that you can circle because you know that the team is going to be favored can can stop the bleeding or add to a winning streak if you've got it it just it's it's fun there's nothing in sports quite like a starting pitcher and when you have a really really good one it's it's something really exciting for fans and and when you don't have one boy that season gets long really long yeah no i think that's a perfect way of putting it because there's again like i just pulled it up the Giants in 2019 scored 65 runs in the first inning, and they allowed 118 runs. Oh my in the first god! Inning. So they were nearly doubled up, right? And and, and like you mentioned, um, so yeah, that was a 6.28 first inning ERA. And you know, you're, you're looking at that, and like you say, I think it's natural to press, and it's also just natural to know, you know, if I make an out in this at bat, it means a lot less if I have. Madison Bumgarner on the mound. And there's also, again, just the mental, I think, stopgap too, of obviously we know, even if you have a high quality ace, right? Even if you have, you know, prime Clayton Kershaw, Madison Bumgarner, Tim Lincecum, yeah, you're not going to win once every five days. Obviously, when we say that, you know, you can stop the bleeding, we don't know that. But it's part of it is a mental thing. You just have a confidence when, you know, I'm sure the Nationals fans with Max Scherzer when he's on the mound, that you going into that game have the confidence that you'll be competitive. And even if you lose, it's like Steph Curry shooting, right? Just because he has a bad shooting game, for the most part, you're not worried that he's not going to be a competent shooter the next game. And that's kind of how, how I think it, it works with starting pitching as well, where, again, if, if – you know, if Kevin Gaussman had a terrible start this last season, right? One start where he just went three innings, nine runs. I don't really think he had that. If he, like, that was sort of how watching him for myself was, I was, you know, I really liked the signing. I thought he was doing really well. I, I, I wanted the team to extend him. But it was also like every time I watched, I was like nervous that this was going to be when it kind of all unraveled and that 2019 form that had the six ERA was going to return, right? There was that nervousness. There wasn't that confidence there. And that's something I don't think players are immune to as well. That's a really good point. That's a, that's a really, really good point because we do, it's exhausting watching players that are unknown quantities uh, because you're always, you're always thinking about how predictive it is. You're always looking at their performance, good or bad, and trying to figure out what it's going to tell you about their performance for the rest of the season. And when you have an established, really good player, you get to let go of that when they perform poorly and you get to hang on to that when they perform well. And that's, it just, it offers a lot of peace of mind. And I agree with you. I don't think players are immune to that at all. And you see, you hear that from them. I mean, to use your analogy about, you know, Steph Curry, like you said, I I cover the Warriors and you, you sit in on a, on a press conference after he has a bad game and what what you hear from the players and the coaches is well if we can perform that well even with Steph having an off game then that says good things about us or well he doesn't have two bad games in a row so we're really excited for the next time out things like that there's there's no element of feeling like the poor performance is predictive it's it's just a blip on the radar. And, and that really, I think, can help you as a player just brush a game off and move on to the next one because it's exhausting in a 162-game season to look at every loss and every poor performance and wonder, is this us? Is this what we're going to do? Is this who we are? Uh, and it's, it's really helpful when you can just have a, a bad game or a bad performance and go, well, that's... That's an anomaly. It's a long season. It happens. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I, I think to kind of shift away from the roster on the field, you know, we've talked 
a good amount about ownership. And I think, you know, I think it's useful to transition to exhausting when we talk about ownership groups in general around professional sports. And obviously Giants principal owner, Charles Johnson, even though he doesn't do interviews and does everything in his power to not be in the limelight, has found himself once again in headlines after donating to a number of Republican lawmakers, including, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name, last name, actually, I think Lauren Boebert is how I'm going to say it, the QAnon gun-toting uh, con- now congresswoman, uh, as well as a number of people who voted against the ratification of the Electoral College, and a lot of people who've been promoting uh, the insurrectionist uh, dynamic, or maybe it's not dynamic, the, you know, in some ways movement happening in parts of the United States, and he issued a request to have his donation returned. But this isn't the first time this has happened. It was, if it wasn't a year ago, it was two years ago, where a similar thing happened. He donated to, I believe, a campaign in Mississippi that uh, had uh, a candidate who mentioned wanting to be in the front row to public lynching, had run a racist ad against an opponent. And I just, you know, this isn't really necessarily, I guess, a question for you. It's more just a, a platform to kind of vent, but also, I guess, say, you know, your perspective on, you know, all of it and that what, I don't know, actually, this isn't even a question. This is just me kind of ranting now. <laughs> um, it, it's just frustrating and in uh, endlessly tiring when I think we see, again, just this disregard for, I don't know, so much, you know, I mean, I think the pandemic is obviously an example of so much disregard for human life at a very real just level, but throughout beyond the pandemic, it just perpetuates so far. And it's just, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to be abundantly clear with something that probably doesn't need to be said, like Charles Johnson asked for, asked for a return on his donation and he asked for a return on his donation two or three years ago, whenever that racist ad was run. It doesn't count if you ask for a return on your donation when you are getting torn to shreds in the eye of the public, which is where you are making your money. Um, you know, that, that, it just doesn't count. I mean, I guess in, in a very utilitarian practical sense, it counts in the sense that those horrible people are not getting your money and hopefully that can however minutely limit the amount of damage that they can do so i guess in that regard it counts but like charles johnson can say whatever he wants about oh i didn't realize that this was happening and oh i'm i'm against what happened on january 6th he's not doing any of this without extreme amounts of public pressure or not even public pressure, because he probably doesn't care about public pressure, public criticism. He's, he's looking bad publicly, and that's why he's asking for a return on these donations. And that is the only driving force behind it. Um, so whatever statements he puts out, whatever things he says or asks for, you know, there's no, there's no silver lining here to, to his actions. There's no, there's no way to spin this or sugarcoat what he intended to do and and where his opinions are at and where his money is at and you know it should be noted that that um espn and i think 538 as well their research that had charles johnson just miles ahead of everyone else uh who owns sports teams in terms of um political political donations exclusively to um republican candidates and whatnot so I'm always a tiny bit split when these things come out because I'm, I'm just kind of naturally a cynic when it comes to um, hoping that people will do the right thing and be good people. That's maybe not something I should admit, but it is what it is. Uh, So, you know, for me personally, I kind of feel like in order to be a sports fan, you have to disassociate from that a little bit because I just assume that, the bulk of these billionaire owners have opinions that I vehemently disagree with. Uh, I assume that the bulk of the players have um, opinions that I pretty strongly disagree with. Um, You know, obviously everyone is entitled to their own 
political opinions and, and values and beliefs. Uh, I think it's safe to say that for my political opinions and values, uh, they are in contrast to the majority of professional baseball players. So it's in a way, it's something that I've kind of just had to disassociate from in the past, but I don't think that changes how disappointing it is when you're confronted with it as blatantly as we have been with Charles Johnson, especially when it very clearly goes beyond just a, a difference in political beliefs and into some donations to just downright corrupt and immoral people. And it sucks. And, you know, that's kind of, I don't, I don't know how to sugarcoat that one. It sucks. Yeah. And I think to build off of that, to build off your original point when you're talking about external criticism, I think it was honestly even more that internal pressure from people in the Giants organization who are, I think, honestly, the leading drivers of why he puts out that statement and asks for his money back. Because, mm -hmm. again, we saw, you know, Renell Brooks Moon, the PA announcer, put out some, I'm not sure if she put out public comments, but definitely retweeted some articles that were hyper critical of Johnson's donations. Um, there, you know, obviously, uh, you know, manager Gabe Kapler and president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, have been pretty outspoken relative to other people in their positions around the league on issues that come on a very, uh, I'm going to put it as the opposite perspective as the one promoted by uh, the candidate we're talking about here. And so I think that's the other part of it, where again, it's people within the Giants organization. I remember when the first donations came out, where, you know, there's a lot of people in the Giants organization that don't work in baseball operations, that work in like community outreach and whatnot. And we can, you know, there's a separate conversation to be had about the function of, you know, major corporations and community outreach and philanthropy and all that. But like, these are people who are trying to use, you know, whatever amount of the Giants resources they're given to make a difference in the community through donations, through, you know, to deal with uh, or to try to address, right, problems that emerge from, you know, injustices throughout the system, especially in the Bay Area. And there was reports that they came out honestly and were just irate because of all the work they do those donations undo not only so much of the trust they can get from neighborhood and community leaders, but also just makes it that much for them. It makes it a conflict because they're trying to make this difference while the person who, you know, is probably paying their bills or at least funding their position is seeming to actively work against it. And the other thing about, I think Johnson's statement that to me is that it was a statement. He has never had a press conference. He has never done a public interview where he's been challenged or asked any questions he's had to address. So we don't even know if he's the one who writes this because I'm sure he's a billionaire. I'm sure he has, I mean, they always have the Giants PR people. He probably has his own lawyers and PR people who can craft something like this. The fact that he's not even willing to put himself under the minimal microscope of just answering questions about things he does to me exposes even more because again, the question I want to ask him, and it's the exact question that I think so many people do is what do you think you are donating for? Because that's the thing when he says he doesn't, you know, he opposes the acts on January 6th, he opposes or, you know, he condemns racism, you know, the, or those various comments, then what is he donating to these candidates for? Because this we are, we are, we always end up talking about the furthest, the most egregious of the candidates. But the fact is, if we look at the median candidate, if we look at the average candidate he is donating to, you know, it is almost all people who vehemently oppose abortion. It is almost all people who vehemently oppose forms of affirmative action. Like, we aren't even getting to the extremes of someone like Bobert. Like, at a very basic level, all these people. Um, are antagonistic to it. And again, he's not even coming forward to address it. Again, I don't know if I, like, look, if he came out and addressed it, would that change how I felt? No, because frankly, I don't trust him, right? And I think that's part of the issue. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of, I guess, bet about that. So <laughs> appreciate it. I agree with, I agree with all of that. And I think, I think that last point is really is really good because in a way it almost cheapens it when when what happens happened when right you have a you know you have whatever it was like 5000 of his you know millions of of dollars of donations are going towards this person on on the most extreme end of the spectrum 
and it allows all of the eyes to kind of go over there and follow that and you release your statement and you ask for your money back and you kind of try to sweep it under the rug but like you said what what about all the other money what about all the other donations like you don't need to be you know QAnon person to be having extremely harmful beliefs and laws that you're trying to put into action as a politician and he in my opinion needs needs to answer for those things as well and i don't think that you should be able to just sweep it under the rug because you went to an extreme and then tried to backtrack from that extreme that shouldn't cover up everything else that is out there on the floor that that you're doing and and like you said you know he's he's not putting his money where his mouth is because he's not putting his mouth anywhere and and it's a bummer when people aren't even willing to to be held accountable like that and and it's a very stark contrast to what we saw a year ago when the giants hired gabe kapler and many people justifiably myself included were were upset with the hiring based on what had taken place when he was in the dodgers system and i don't want to give kapler you know a cookie and a pat on the back for being willing to be held accountable uh but he did get up there and he fielded every question about what had happened and about what he was going to do to make sure it didn't happen and, and what he had learned from that. Um, and he kept that dialogue going and he never, never once hid from it. And it's a, a very stark contrast to what we see from Johnson being completely unwilling to answer even, even the most basic questions. Um, like you said, we don't even know if he writ, wrote that statement. I would be shocked if he did. Um, I would be surprised if he so much as even looked at what someone else wrote as the statement. Um, I'm guessing that someone just said, you're getting all kinds of crap from inside the organization. We're going to do some damage control. And he said, okay. And you know, people like to say, sorry, now I'm going on a rant, but it's it's uh, all good. That's what this is for. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's good. I I like this. Um, You know, people like to, to kind of disassociate owners from organizations. And, you know, admittedly, I just said that like 10 minutes ago that that's something <laughs> that I kind of do. But, but to your point about the Giants employees and, you know, the Giants community organization and whatnot, you, you can't make a full disassociation. You, you can hold the owner separate from the players and everyone else you see on a day-to-day um, basis, but they they're the owner the decisions are still ultimately going through them the money is ultimately going through them so you can't just take him out of the equation and go well this isn't what the organization stands for it's it's the opposite it's whatever the organization you know whatever the giants community fund does is in my eyes what the giants organization doesn't stand for because it's in direct opposition to the person who is funding it who who the person who's ultimately writing the checks and ultimately making the final say on decisions um and that's a bummer because there are a tremendous amount of wonderful people in the giants organization who have great visions and great ideas and great values and are making an impact on their communities um and even if you outnumber the owner a thousand to one ultimately they're an LLC and the core values of an LLC are reflected by its owner, not by the great employees who might be doing the actual good work. And so that always has to be remembered in my opinion, because you can't just, you can't just do some good stuff in the community and, and pretend that you're not funding horrible stuff. Yeah, I think saying LLC is also just a perfect way to put it because that LL stands for limited liability. And that's in a lot of ways how this functions for owners. And I think you were getting at and bringing up Kapler. I think that's 
perfect to where part of the problem too and the frustration for me when we have this i guess for lack of a better term discourse around one of these things is that there are really two standards right there is the bare minimum and there is the right thing and oftentimes we conflate those two depend we we handle those two interchangeably without acknowledging it depending on who it is right where like if so if there's someone we have high expectations for we expect them to always do the right thing versus if someone we either don't have those expectations for or for whatever reason have dismissed then all we're asking for is the bare minimum and again i'm not getting into you know how we reconcile that i'm just saying like what you mentioned with kapler again addressing the questions from your previous behavior is the bare minimum. It doesn't yes. mean people are still right. Again, I'm still someone who has a lot of questions and frankly, uh, distaste for Kapler because of that history. And again, I haven't, my opinion on those events hasn't changed very much because he addressed the media, but I'll acknowledge that that's the bare minimum thing he had to do to be manager and he did it. And I think about Johnson in contrast, again, the expectations of what is the bare minimum for an owner versus a GM or team president versus a manager versus a player, right? And again, and we both follow the NBA a lot. Kyrie Irving, who just, you know, he, again, I don't know the backstory, but as far as I think to report, he kind of disappeared from the Nets for a few days without it seems like he told some people some people say he didn't whatever if Kyrie Irving had come back and only issued a statement and not talked to the media he would have been lambasted for that he would have been ripped to shreds they would have said you did this address the media that's the minimum you know it, when again like you mentioned with Kapler right and Johnson just puts out the statement and it's just again the contrast between what expectations we have for what people again like you said that disassociation is necessary like i understand you know i'm not saying you can't enjoy a root for the giants or root for mike yastrzemski or enjoy some of the work that they do in the community but what's so frustrating about it is it's almost impossible to do so consistently when you have this back of your mind if they make money that's going to charles johnson who's probably going to give to these other people like we can never we're, we're so focused on getting johnson to do the bare minimum that we don't even have a dream of getting him to do the right thing you know and that's i think what's again a microcosm i guess of sports in general probably even beyond sports in general where not only again i think the standard for everyone should be to do the right thing but we seem to apply that you know with a level of choice and who we often, and I think it's just interesting to think about who are the people that we tend to apply the highest standards to. And I feel like generally that the people with actually the least power relative to the people we just say do the bare minimum and disappear because we don't want to deal with the reality that the people creating this are doing all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's excellently said. I think your Kyrie Irving point is spot on because it, yeah, we're holding we're holding people lower on the employee totem pole to much higher standards than the people at the top, which is so backwards. And to your Kyrie Irving point, I mean, look at what happened last year with Kevin Durant when mm. he went media silent. He didn't even disappear like Kyrie Irving did. He just stopped talking to the media for, I think, nine days and was just mercilessly critiqued for the fact that he wasn't willing to take accountability and wasn't willing to stand up and, and talk to the, to the media. He didn't even have anything going on that he needed to take accountability for. It wasn't like he did something bad and then stopped talking to the media. He was, he was playing basketball, like, Brady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he owes it to us. Dang it. But you know, that, that, the discourse around that was so, and I'm not even trying to say that, you know, the discourse around it was inherently bad, just that it's, it's so sad that he, as the employee, was held to, so, to such a high standard that then the people at the very, very top are not being held to that. And especially with something like political donations, this isn't just a, you know, a side thing that Charles Johnson did as the majority owner his business with the giants is money 
Like he doesn't need to answer what are you going to do this offseason? He doesn't need to answer why do you have a losing record this season? His job is money. He needs to answer how much money are you willing to spend? Will you shell out a high payroll to have a winning team? And what as an organization and as an owner are you doing with your profits from this team? That's it. That's, those are all the things that he needs to be held accountable for and to answer publicly and to field questions on. And, and it's not a lot, you know, no one wants him. No one is asking him and certainly no one wants him to be sitting in the locker room after games, having <laughs> scrums with reporters, right? Nobody wants that. No one wants his thoughts on the team. No one wants to know what future value he puts on Elliot Ramos. No one wants to know who he thinks the Giants should draft in 2021. He's the majority owner. He deals with money. He needs to answer questions as they pertain to money. And like you said, that, that's, that's, not this, that's not doing well. That's not doing it right. That's the bare minimum. And it's something that he is just painfully and drastically falling short on. Yeah, I, I know I've taken up enough of your time, but I guess I'll, I have one more thought on this and then I'll finally let you go, is I, I think it's, you know, we're both obviously reporters. We both, you know, we've done this probably at various points and, you know, we know this is a part of the game, right? Where something happens outside the world of sports, we will still often ask players about it, right? You know, again, the, you know, there weren't necessarily always games going on, but at some points into some sports there were, right? When the, when there was a, police homicide of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, right? We turn to players. We ask them, what are your thoughts on this? You know, or some players, to be fair, we should, you know, like, I want, I'm just saying like, we're doing that for all players. We're doing it for some coach. Why aren't we doing this for all coaches? Why aren't we doing it for GMs? Why can the owners hide behind us, right? We know, you know, if you're, if you have a phone number of a player and something comes up or, you know, prominently, you're going to text that player or call that player, go, hey, what, what are your thoughts on this thing happening? in the world to see if they want, they want to talk about it. But the owner is somehow able to shelter himself. And I think about the comment, uh, I believe it was on Bill Simmons podcast by Jackie McMullen that got um, a lot of run around the Kyrie Irving thing. And again, I'm not going to get into, you know, this is just the one thing that Jackie McMullen said that I believe was rightfully criticized. And, you know, I hold this belief when she basically said the thing around Kyrie Irving was talking about the draft and, you know, basically that, you know, it's, there's no other profession that does it. Why do we do it? It feels like we're property. And then she basically said they got in an argument over this and where she said, you are property because you make millions of dollars. And I wanted someone to ask her, what about the owners who make more than any player? Like what, like that's to me again, where this, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on the players and their roles and their thoughts. It is that why are we only focusing on this when if we're, if our argument, right, is going to be that players quote unquote, owe this to teams, owe this to media because of how much they make, then if it's based on how much you make, then actually the general, the owner is the person who is most accountable to this. And probably in most organizations, there's three to four players who are next and then comes the president or GM and then comes a few other players and then comes the coach and then comes the rest of the roster that's making minimum salaries. Like if it's just this, again, it's these double standards throughout that is frustrating um, all around and just Again, it's inconsistently applied, and who they're applied to is so blatantly obvious in a lot of these cases. It revolves around not having power. When it comes to sports, it's often revolving around race as well. And, and those things are not, you know, we can't disconnect those two things when we're talking about this, right? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. And I'm glad you brought up that. I'm glad you brought up that Jackie McMullen quote because uh, that was obviously a, a rough thing to listen to, but. Um, it obviously brought up a lot of good discourse in response to it. Um, and I'm not sure if this is as connected when I say it out loud as it is in my head, but everything you just said about, you know, the owners being the ones that are making the most money that have the most sitting in the bank, they should be the most accountable. 
it's doubly hard for me when you you have to accept that and that they're not holding themselves accountable like Charles Johnson is not. And then you see the cutthroat side on the other side of it, mm-hmm. where you see this week that the Giants are going to arbitration with Donovan Solano over $650,000, I think. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I get that it's, it's a business. You have to, at some level, be making business decisions, but it just highlights that difference that your, your billionaires making tens, if not hundreds of millions a year through this business enterprise of yours, you're going to arbitration with one of your best players over $650,000, and then you're unwilling to be held responsible for, for the actions that you have done as the, the main, the, the top of the hierarchy in your business. And it's just, it's all gross. It's all icky. Yeah, and, and thinking about that, right, $650,000, that's not $650,000 the Giants are going to spend elsewhere in the organization if Donovan and Solano loses the arbitration hearing. That's $650,000 that's going to go to Charles Johnson. Right. right. There's, and, there's no salary cap. There's no reallocation of funds. That's just money. And that's 325,000 do- equivalent donations to people like Lauren Boebert, right? That's ultimately what this is in a lot of ways. And again... Um, well, Brady, is there anything else you want to add? I feel like I've taken up enough of your time in this. No, I mean, I guess just to wrap up this, to wrap up the discussion we just had there, the only thing I, I want to add, I don't say this to put any criticism on the Giants players um, because this is emphatically, it's not their job to hold Charles Johnson accountable. So, and I just want to make it clear, I'm not criticizing them when I say this. In light of all of this, I can't help but think of the courageous work that the players in the WNBA did this year in holding Kelly Leffler accountable. Um, For people who don't follow WNBA, Kelly Leffler, who obviously just lost her Senate seat in Georgia uh, is co-owner of the Atlanta dream. One of the teams in the league and almost every player in the league this season called her out, starting with her own team, uh, just ripped her campaigned for Raphael Warnock played a huge part in that election, et cetera, et cetera. And those are players who have, a lot to lose um mm-hmm. and they they don't make very much money in that league relative to in other sports leagues and they it didn't matter to them their potential repercussions the potential employment losses they they had a, they took a stand on something they believe in and obviously you know an owner who is an actively harmful politician is a bit different than an owner who is donating to those politicians, there is certainly a level of separation there. Um, and again, I don't say this as a criticism to to the Giants players for not standing up more against uh, against Johnson's donations. But it is the first thing I thought of that it when you see these people go and make make these immoral decisions and donations and whatnot, and they're not held accountable by very many people. Um, it reminds me of just how important and courageous it is uh, for the people who have held them accountable. Um, And to tie that in even more with the giants, everything you said, you know, about the people within the organization, um, you know, on the business side, on the philanthropy side and whatnot, who did hold them accountable. um, I I do think Rennell played a big part uh, in him asking for that donation back and in drawing awareness to this. So, um, you know, uh, a lot of credit to those people who who were willing to take a stand, even if they're worried about where their checks are coming from. Yeah, and I, you know, when we have these conversations, it's hard for me not to think of a book I have and have started reading, haven't finished it, but what I've read, what the reviews have said about it's by Jessica Luther and could be the Davidson Loving Sports when they don't love you back, is fantastic read and also at least of what I've seen so far and also just gets it the core of this. This isn't about 
don't root for the Giants. This isn't about don't be a sports fan. But, you know, our job, right, we're covering this, is to tell the full story. And the full story, for better or worse, is not just what happens from inning one through whenever the game ends. It is the story that happens in the front office. It is the story that happens with the coaches. It's the story that happens with the ownership. And it's the story of what they do on the field and off. And that's just the reality for San Francisco Giants fans that, you know, Charles Johnson is a major part of this for better or worse. He doesn't, it doesn't appear there's going to be any pressure. It doesn't seem like he's going to move to sell the team. And frankly, even if he did, the odds of someone who bought the team being necessarily better aren't necessarily high either. It's just that that's part of this story. Um, and I just want to thank you, Brady, again, for coming on. This is, uh, it's, I, I enjoyed it. I think it was somewhat chaotic conversation. We'll see how this looks <laughs> in the edit when I listen to it again, but um, where can the people find you and keep up with your work? Yeah, you can find my, my baseball work at McCoveyChronicles.com, uh, my basketball work at ColdenStateOfMind.com. Uh, my Twitter is at Brady Klopp for NBA. I need to uh, drop the NBA part from there uh, eventually, since <laughs> certainly not that exclusive. But yeah, you can find all my stuff there. Uh, Mark, this was, a, this was a, a fun, well, yeah, fun, not quite the right word. This, is a, this was a good conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I am Mark DeLuke. You can follow me on Twitter at Mad DeLuke. That is M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. This has been another episode of the Sound the Foghorn podcast. Make sure to stay up to date with all your San Francisco Giants news and rumors over at AroundTheFoghorn.com. And you can follow us on Twitter over at Round the Foghorn. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful time.